All right. So if you have your Bibles, why don't you turn with me to them, uh, in, in them, to Revelation chapter 20. The title this morning is The End. Now, you, know, might, you might say, hey, Dap, yeah, there, there are two more chapters. Yep, because that's the rest of the story. That's after the end. But today, we will take a look at the end. Today, we come to a portion of the book of Revelation that is one part mystery and another part absolute certainty. They are both true. They both inspire hope and reverence. They both declare the incomparable supremacy and victory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Today we come to the end of history as we know it. Today we see the fork in the road of all eternity. Today, we can still choose which way we'll go. So let's begin. Revelation chapter 20. We're going to read a little bit and uh, pause and and then we'll reflect. Revelation chapter 20. Here's scene one. The first half of this is Satan's doom and the thousand-year mystery. Verse 1, then I saw an angel. You have to pardon me because I I probably have spent more time in the text this week than you have, and so little words make me very happy. But I want, how many angels did you count there? Come on, how many angels? (laughs) How many? Just one. Just one. Someone say just one. Oh, man, I wish Tassie could come back and play a little bit because you don't even know how exciting this is. Maybe you do. What? How many? One angel come down from heaven holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who was the devil, Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. How many angels did it take to beat him up? <laughs> don't you get all worked up about it? He got one angel handled the whole thing. Oh, no, the devil. One angel. Come on. And he threw him into the abyss. Well, hang on, hang on. You got, if, you keep, if you shout the whole time, you'll miss the whole thing. And he, and he threw him into the abyss, and he shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer. I know, it all sounds good so far, and then it gets weird. Until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. See, I heard that. Wait a minute. I liked it. You should have stopped earlier. So in scene one, we have the devil who is bound. By the way, one angel does it. He is bound, he is bound for a thousand years so that he will not deceive the nations. This again reminds us of what the devil, his main thing is. He deceives. But he doesn't just deceive individuals, but entire nations. Understand what he is at work, what he does in the world. Okay? But apparently, 
he gets locked up. Verse 4, then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. Not that they were judged, but they were given the, the right to oversee. And judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded, or that means who got the axe. Now, that's a euphemism by John's time for martyrdom, because they would use axes, swords, ropes, anything. But it has to do with those who were martyred for their faith. Those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand, and they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Now, that's not 2,000. This is the same time period. Here's scene number two. Scene one, Satan doomed. Scene two, saints reigning. These are, according to the text, these are the souls of those who have done all that revelation up until this point has prescribed and exhorted and encouraged believers to do. These are those who have been faithful to Christ, who have, who have uh, stayed away from the immorality and the idolatry of the age and been faithful as the betrothed, remember last week, as the betrothed to Christ, they have lived awaiting the bridegroom. And these are the souls of the church militant, the church overcomers. And they, according to this text here, they are described as they reign with Christ for a thousand years. Now, remember, so far in Revelation, almost no number is literal. As really, honestly, the larger the number, the more symbolic it is. Every number has been representative. And by the time we get to this idea of a thousand, we're perfectly welcome. I mean, if you want to take it literally, that's fine because it's a long time. But a thousand years, if you want to think, what does that mean? I wonder what a thousand years means. It means a long time. A thousand, you, here's, here's something super academic. A thousand years is symbolic for a long time. And if you want to make it literal, that's fine, because that means it's still a long time. Okay? All right. So verse 5, the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Verse 6, blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. This, is, this, this thing has been repeated now several times. Now, John says this is the first resurrection. That means the souls of those who had been martyred, the souls of the faithful, the souls of those who had not worshipped the beast, that, had, that pledged loyalty and participated in the blasphemy of the beast. These people are raised to life. That's the first resurrection. The second resurrection in verse, is verse 5. But that hasn't happened yet. It's just referred to. The rest of the dead, those, and that means those who have died up until the end of chapter 19. These are the ungodly, the beast worshipers, those who have not obeyed the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's actually a whole list that's described in chapter 21, and it's not very pretty. But these are not raised just yet. We're just told just now there's a difference between these resurrections. That's what the text says. It sounds mysterious. Let's keep going. 
Scene three, verse seven. When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison. You know, sometimes you have memories of your childhood, do you, some of you? Uh, one of my great memories of chi- my childhood is my mom. My mom would make me breakfast and then read the scriptures to me every morning before I left for school. I don't n- know when that stopped, probably around middle school, because then I started getting up earlier and, and have, that's funny. My mom would, <laughs> that's funny now that I think about it. I would have breakfast and I would have a nourishing breakfast of protein in the word with my mom, hallelujah. And then as soon as that stopped, I'd have donuts with my dad. <laughs> <laughs> Still turned out okay. All right. Uh, uh, but I remember, I remember my mother, at some point she was reading this to me, and I remember she came to this verse and probably was, and she said out loud what many of you have either said numerous times or saying to yourself. I remember her saying something like this. I don't know why he got released after that. I remember her murmuring to herself, like, why in the world did that happen? And, uh, and uh, the truth is, that is the question a lot of people go, how does that sound uh, and there's a lot of commentators that say, well, clearly he needed to be. And they're just making stuff up. Let's keep reading. When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to, to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. Now, that's not symbolism. That's a metaphor. Or if it's like, I guess it's simile. But that means there's a lot of them, too. Okay, so here's another picture of a great war brewing. Now, the the phrase Gog and Magog comes from the book of Ezekiel, uh, 38, 39 in there. And that is John's way of reminding his audience Gog and Magog became kind of symbolic of of, uh, unbelieving pagan nations at war. There's a great reference to a great war, and Gog is the boss of Magog. Okay? But, but that's symbolic, that these are, this is representative of, of pagan nations. And John tells us that there's another, or there's a, there is a great war brewing. It is either another war, or it's another picture of what we've already seen. It's either a picture of what we've already seen in former chapters, we've already heard about some of this stuff, or it's another thing happening. Now, it would be easier, for, in my opinion, if, if, if this were simply another picture of what we've already seen, I would prefer that. However, adding to the mystery of this passage is that the logic of the text suggests we're seeing something new. Regardless, though, a big war is brewing. Everybody say a big war. A big war is brewing, and then we come to verse 9. And they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints, those folks that we already read about, and the beloved city. And fire came from heaven and devoured them. War drums, war drums, war drums, anticipation, over. If you want to see a long battle, rent the extended version of Lord of the Rings. But don't look for it here. And they came up on the broad, and they armed themselves, and, and, and the fire came to them. Verse 10, and the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where, this is where we go, hey, wait a minute, this, where the beast and the prophet are also. 
So whether we like it or not, the text is telling us that, this, that what we just read happened after what we read earlier. And they, they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Once again, it is over before it starts. There is no battle. There is only radical defeat and glorious and total victory. The army is destroyed immediately, and the devil is thrown into the lake of fire forever and ever. Don't you like John? He doesn't just say forever. He makes sure we understand something. Forever and ever. So what just happened? Those ten verses. What in the world just happened? This is what is called the millennium. Not a falcon. <laughs> Sound booth is both rejoicing and protesting. Sound booth probably prefers it would be the falcon. It'd be easier to explain. That's a ship that did the parcel run. Anyway, parcel. Uh, there, anyway, uh, uh, this is one of the, this thing here that's called the millennium. And, and honestly, it's ten, it's ten whole verses out of the whole Bible. But I've got to take a moment and talk about it. This is one of the most difficult parts of the entire book of Revelation. There have been endless, and I repeat endless, disputes, and some of them very bitter over the way to understand this portion of Scripture. Evangelicals have divided from one another and sometimes have been quite intolerant of other views other than their very own group, which we know is exactly what Christ intended. Therefore, friends, it is necessary for us to approach these few verses with humility and charity, with humble and loving hearts. Let us not take a bite of the hubris that would say, we really know and no one else does. That would preclude us from understanding. There have been historically three ways of understanding and interpreting these verses. Not that there are only three, but the truth is, after, after I would say 1,500, but really, probably almost 2,000 years, almost. About 2,000 years of talking about it, we're still, with we, after hashing it out, there's about three things, three ways that people have settled on understanding this. And that is premillennialism, postmillennialism, and amillennialism. Blah, 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 blah. Millennialism simply means what you think about the millennium. Are you pre or post or ah? <laughs> I, there is pan, and that is, ah, we think it's all going to pan out in the end. Yeah, that's fine. You can vote for that one today if you'd like. But here's, and that's probably, honestly, no matter what you think, it's pan-millennialism. No matter what you vote, it's all going to pan out. Okay. <laughs> So here's the deal, though. Historically, here's the idea. Premillennialists hold that Christ's return, which happened in, they believe that happened in chapter 19 with the bridegroom cometh, that at his return, the Christian dead will be raised and believers still living on the earth will be caught up to meet him in the air, according to 1 Thessalonians 4.17. These will reign on earth with Christ for a thousand years, whether that's a thousand years or a really long time. Okay, it doesn't matter. That's, and during that time, Satan will be totally bound, okay? After this season, Satan will be released. And then after a short time, 
That will follow the the raising of the dead, the resurrection of everybody else, and then finally a judgment, which we'll get to in just a minute. Post-millennialists differ. They see the return of Christ as taking place after this millennium. They, They sometimes see the millennium as standing for a triumph of the gospel in this present age. That, 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 that the gospel, the movement began, and that the kingdom will be increasing. I mean, his kingdom will have no end, and they see this triumphant, powerful gospel that is growing and growing and converting the nations and then reaching a place where for a long time there is the, the church reigns. There is this triumphant expression of the church, and then because he's coming, and they'll say, because Jesus is coming for a spotless bride without spot or wrinkle. He's coming for a beautiful thing, and you can feel the faith and the, and the hope of, of post-millennialists. Now, all millennialists will hold that there is no literal millennium. That the thousand-year period is a, is, is a totally symbolic long period, and it stands for the time between advents, between when Christ first came and when he will return. And they see the first resurrection, they, they call the first resurrection of, as being born again, being, being raised. Remember, we, were, we die with Christ and we raise with him. There's lots of Pauline theology that you can extract to say, oh, we were raised with Christ then. They see that as being, and, and, and you would say, well, he's Paul, I mean, John says, blessed are those who are part of the first resurrection. How many are glad to be part of that? If that's right, how many are glad to be, part, to be born again? You have to be born again. These are, these are real expressions, okay? And uh, then they see, though, that this idea of Satan being bound in the chapter 20, that that means that his authority, because of what Christ has done, is now significantly limited on the earth. They'll look at passages like when Jesus said, you cannot, uh, you've got to bind a strong man before you ransack his house. They're saying that's what Jesus did. That was the, in, the, in, the, in the cross and the resurrection of Jesus, there was a, de- a, a defeat of the devil. How many believe that actually happened? And we've, and we've actually saw that in, in chapter 11 and 12 and 13, that the dragon was thrown out of heaven and he didn't appreciate it. Right? All of that happened. So, and they believe that in this period, this thousand-year idea, that Christ is reigning now from heaven through the church. And they're not wrong about that. Right? Each of these, in other words, each of these ideas are, these are real Christians who love Jesus that believe these things. So if you disagree, simmer down. Simmer down now. Okay? These, these are, these are, this is faith here. So now, uh, each of these have elements that you can, that I can find. If you said, hey, can you support that? I can proof text any of them. But the point is not to proof text of you. The point is simply to try to respond humbly to what the scripture is saying. How do we respond to it? Well, historically, these, uh, these, these, these views have been practiced. And you say, well, how, how is the, what's, histo- what's historical theology? What, what, is, what does that say about these? Well, many of the earliest church fathers were, they call them millennia, millen- they're not millionaires. I can't even say millennium. Anyway, they, they were millennialists. There's too many syllables in that word for me to say. There's a little bit of my Tennessee roots there that I just can't quite get over. Um, but many of these church fathers, they, they were millennialists. They, they believed this. Toward the end of the, the or pardon me, toward the middle of the second century, which would be about 150 A.D., Justin Martyr said 
that properly instructed Christians were assured of a, of a resurrection of the dead to be followed by a thousand years in Jerusalem. Now, Irenaeus, about the end of the, the end of the same century, so about 200 AD, he believed and taught that in an earthly millennium during which the saints and martyrs would be rewarded. There's lots of Bible for that. Now, about 400 AD, Augustine, Augustine, he began to interpret and he began to teach that he, he made the first serious effort to teach that Revelation 20 taught was that was a was that, that the millennium was a was a was a, a symbolic. He taught all millennialism. He held that the thousand year reign was to be taken as an interval between the first advent and the final conflict, and that the binding of Satan during this period was accomplished by Christ during his earthly ministry. That kind of was launched or made official under Augustine. That, so historically, we see this has been around for a long time. But what, just take a look, let's take a fresh look at the text here. And also, I'll say this about history. Oftentimes, whatever's happening in the world will influence people's millennialness. Okay? If things are going great, they're post-millennialists. Yay! It's going great. If things are going bad, pre-millennial. <laughs> right? <laughs> Honestly, it kind of depends. During World War II and World War I, what do you think the prevailing millennial theory was? Pre, pre, pre. And then, you know what? The good news was the big old blow-up revival happened, okay? Especially 1800s and 1900s. When people think the end of the world is coming, they start praying more, witnessing more, and revival happens. Amazing. Fine. Believe what you want. Just get revival done. Okay? Yes, the, the truth is, it's all going to pan out. All right. Now, the scripture is, fine, is interesting. In verses, uh, verses 1 through 3, we see that, that there's an angel who's given a key to the abyss. This great chain, he lays hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, Satan. We've already met this guy in chapter 12. He is bound for a thousand years. He's thrown into the abyss. It is shut over him, and he is sealed in there. As such, friends, he cannot deceive the nations any further. This, is, this confinement isn't punishment. It is concealment. He, the text seems to say that this means this is a cessation of his influence on the earth. I mean, this is the logic of the text. Rather than just him being sort of curbed, it's hard to read that any other way than he's locked up and ain't nobody hearing from him. So with this binding of Satan, his deceitful activity is brought to an end. And not only individual persons, but listen, above all, according to this, national and social structures get to breathe the free air of undemonized existence. Now, that is interesting. Now, the other beasts, and we already read in chapter 19, they aren't anywhere. When we've been told that the dragon makes war against the church, and etc., we're told already that he does that via his agents, right? The, 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 the beast and the false prophet. But they're, no, they're not anywhere in chapter 20. As well, they are. They're in the lake of fire. So, again, we're, this is something that has happened after. So none of this really fits with what we've read so far about the church militant. This, is, this, this doesn't sound, this thousand year doesn't sound like a description of the season of the church militant. It sounds like this is the church triumphant. In verses 4 through 6, we see these faithful saints who did not worship the beast, as in past tense. They reign with Christ for a thousand years. Over these, John says, the second death has no power. What is that second death? Remember in, in chapter 2, verse 11, we've already heard this. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. So 
these overcomers are now being referred to in chapter 20, and they will not be affected by the second death. What is that second death? In case we don't know, chapter 20 and verse 14, we'll get there. It says, this is the second death. Very clear. This is the second death, the lake of fire. These are priests and kings. They are reigning with Christ. Now, while John says these are those that have, that, that have been axed, they have, not, they, have, uh, they have not taken the mark, John is describing uh, the whole church really as martyrs. And he doesn't necessarily anticipate that everyone is going to be martyred, but in John's view, to be a Christian means to be absolutely willing to be faithful unto death, that your allegiance to Christ has, has divorced you from your allegiance to this life entirely, that come what, come what may, you are living for the testimony of Jesus Christ. Whoever these people are in chapter 20, they, 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 this isn't, they have not been symbolically raised. Like Christ says, we are, we are seated with Christ in the heavenlies. Yes, Paul does say that. But John isn't talking about a symbolic resurrection or a symbolic throne. He, these are people that are really alive, and they're really experiencing something glorious. Further, in chapter 2, verse 26... There, that we see that reigning with Christ is a promise to all victorious believers. Verse 226, he who conquers and he who keeps my works until the end, I will give him power over the nations and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, etc. So we hear this, this, this has already been promised. What we're reading about resonates with the promises we read in Scripture. Then in verses 7 through 10, Satan is let back out for a while to the sea of the nations. A great number gather and surround the beloved city of God. But then the whole army is destroyed by the breath of God. Who are these people? Where did they come from? I don't know. Look in the camera. I don't know. Are they the remnant? Have they been born over a thousand years? Where did they come from? We are not told that. It's not here. You can make stuff up, but it's not there. What is here is something that the church has been eager to see. What it, what, so we do know is more important than what we don't know. What we do see is verse 10. The devil is thrown into the lake of fire with the beast and the prophet, false prophet, and they are tormented day and night forever and ever. This is a glorious, complete Total elimination of the architects and agents of evil. Are you feeling that? The total elimination. Gone. Forever. The tormentor. The persecutor. The architect of evil and suffering. Gone. Forever. Eternity will proceed without Satan's deception and wicked influence. Now, although the millennium has attracted much attention from interpreters, it's not a large portion of Scripture, and it only occurs in this brief passage, not only in this letter, but it's nowhere else in the, in the New Testament. So the, therefore, friends, it's really not a doctrine to be debated, and it certainly isn't meant to divide us, but it is a mystery that should be celebrated. What we see here. What we see here, whatever is happening, as much as we don't understand, here's what we know. It is glorious. There is no fear. There is only peace and glory. 
There is total defeat of heaven's enemies. There is total victory for heaven and her saints. There is no reason for us to ever guess what will be happening. If you and I, or when you and I, find ourselves in that situation, no one will have to write a paperback and say, did you know what's happening? We'll know. You won't have to tune in to anybody and say, by the way, I've got the lowdown. Here's the secret thing. You will know it. So don't worry about it. What we do know is this, that we all we see in front of us is great hope and total victory. The only message to take away from that part, those 10 verses, great hope, total victory. Say it with me. Great hope, total victory. And we also know that this is the end. The end. This is it. The end, because of what happens next, this is it. What happened before may have been a mystery, but what happens next is an absolute certainty. Verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and the books were open, and another book was opened, which was the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and, the, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. John says, I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it. These next verses, these next words are significant. From whose presence earth and heaven fled away and no place was found for them. That makes it sound like earth and heaven itself were trying to hide, but they couldn't. Some see this as, as, the, as, as earth and heaven trying to hide, but God's total and perfect sight of everything. Others see it as literally a time when the, when the old creation literally passes away. When Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never. This is an idea. This, this might be of the very time where, there's a, the, the, where history begins to change. And at this throne, all that was was no more. Then, John says, I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. Pick it up in verse 13. He says, the sea gives up the dead, death and Hades. That means, again, that's that's literally the sea, meaning like as in humanity all itself and the sea. Like there isn't anywhere. It doesn't matter where you were buried. It doesn't matter what happened to you. But there is a resurrection of every person who's ever lived in anywhere they're put, anywhere they're stowed, anywhere they're burnt, anywhere they're stuck. They come out and they're going to be before that throne. There's nowhere you can hide. You You will be brought before that throne. Then it says books are opened, plural. The books are opened by which every person will be judged according to their works. In other words, what happens next, 
the degree to which they experience whatever happens next will be affected by these books. They're judged, John says, they are judged according to their deeds. By the ones, there's two sets of books. One is the book, literally, there's a set of books that judges people's works. And then there's over here, there's one book. You feel me? Over here, many books that are, that are a record of people's deeds. And you will, everybody is going to have those books opened. And those, those works, your deeds, will be measured, recorded. You're going to talk to Jesus about it. And then after that, there's one book. Let's talk about this book over here, these books over here first. These books over here tell us that human freedom and human responsibility are as serious as it can get. What you do matters, and it will matter ultimately. The teaching of judgment according to your works runs throughout both Old and New Testaments. Let me quickly just read these passages. Psalm 62 tells us that, uh, that, 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 God, requires a per- that will God, God will require to, of a person to give account of their own work. Jeremiah 17.10, God says, I, the Lord, search the heart and examine the mind to reward a man according to his conduct, according to what his deeds deserve. The same principle is taught in the New Testament. It gets more and more clear. Paul writes that God, in Romans 2.6, God will give to each person according to what he has done. 2 Corinthians 5.10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. It's in the books. Peter reminds us that God judges each man's work impartially. Jesus even says, you talk about what's in those books. Remember, eternity is a long time, friends. Jesus says in Matthew 12, 36, he says, I tell you that every careless word that means every unprofitable unhelpful unedifying every unemployable word that comes out of your mouth you will be held accountable for on the day of judgment the books were open this you think it's no joke heaven and earth please psalm 58 verse 11 says surely there is a reward for the righteous our ultimate hope and judgment is reward Surely there is a a God who judges the earth. Friends, there will be a sigh of relief in the cosmos itself. Everything will be accounted for and judged and rewarded. There will be no balance sheets unchecked. The issue is absolutely not, in case you're hearing it, the issue is not salvation by works, but that the, the works that your faith produces will be measured and rewarded. Verse 14 says that death and Hades get thrown into the lake of fire. Did you hear that? After this, that, check these, that you have this. He says the people are judged by their works, and then they're judged by their works, and then death and Hades, which was they understood that was the place of the dead. So he's actually differentiating between the, the, the spirit or the power of death and the place where the dead, where the dead are. Okay? What I want you to hear is the first part. Death itself is thrown into the lake of fire. Death itself is thrown into the lake of fire. Death is an invader. Death is alien to God's design. God did not create in Genesis and initiate death. Death is a stranger. It is is an invader into into human existence because of sin. It doesn't belong. 
That people, you talk to people, I've talked to people, you've, you've talked to loved ones who, say, who, who mourn over the, over, the, over the pain of death, over the sadness of death, over, over the, the wound and the, the mourning and the loss that we feel. There's a reason we feel that. Because although, yes, we realize that by now, because of all that's happened, it is appointed to man once to die, and, and God helps us, and he's a redeemer, and all of that. But the point is, no one's ever is, death is an invader, and it grieves us because it's un, it is unnatural. It is unnatural, meaning it is not according to the design of God, and therefore, death itself must eventually must be destroyed. Satan is thrown into that lake of fire to be gone forever. The architect of evil will be gone forever, and there will come a day when death itself will be gone. Well, there'll be, no, there'll be no more concept, no more feeling, no more awareness of anything called death. Gone. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, 26, he said, the last enemy that will be abolished is death. But verse 15 may be the most important verse you may ever hear. Verse 15 of Revelation 20 may be the most important verse you'll ever consider. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. I'm going to ask you to just lean into this perhaps reverently, quietly for a moment. Every name, this picture tells us that although people are, there's an evaluation of our works, there's a book over here that's not based upon our work, but upon his work. This book is a book of the Lamb. This is the book, this is the book where you are judged by your works and rewarded, etc., but this is, this is really his reward. This book is about his reward. These are the names that he has paid for. This is a book of grace. And it's the last book that will ever be opened. The book of grace is the last word. God will have the last word. His grace will have the last word. And there is his, after everything has been said, everything measured, everything evaluated, whatever happens over here, the last word will be grace. The last word will be grace. And those who are saved, those whose names are in this book, will not be touched by the second death. Every name in this book is safe. They are spared. They have nothing to fear. They are saved, saved, saved. Because they believe they have received Christ as their Savior. They have called on His name and He has written their name down in His book. Those whose names are not found in this book are thrown into the lake of fire. Listen, please. This is the same place where the beast and the false prophet and Satan himself and death itself have been thrown where there will be tormented day and night forever and ever. This is the second death. This is why one is blessed for being part of the first resurrection. This is why Jesus offers the promise of having no fear of the second death. Because it is something to be very afraid of. 
We let the Bible speak for itself, apart from our preferences or our, peeling, our feelings. What the Bible says is that hell is real. And it is forever. But no one whose name is in the book will go there. No one whose name is in the book will go there. Everyone whose name is not in the book will. No one whose name is in the book will go there, the lake of fire. Everyone whose name is not will. This is important. This is important for you and for me. This is the fork in the road. This is important for everyone you know. There will come a time when that book, I'm sure it'll take a long time for the role to be called up yonder. But there will come a moment after millennia there will come a moment at the end of history itself. There will come a single moment in time when you will hear this sound. The book will be closed and, there will, and, there, and there, the cry of your heart will be, isn't there just one more name? There will come a time when that book is closed and there will be no more names. And that's the moment. That is the singular greatest moment you must be concerned about this morning. That moment. That moment. I want you to think of it. I want you to let the weight of that moment. Don't run from it. Look at it. What will you do right now to affect that moment? first thing you have to do is decide whether or not your name is in that book. Your name has been called. Your name has been paid for. It's up to you to accept. Will you receive Christ as your Lord? Have you confessed Him as your Lord? Have you knelt at the foot of the cross of Jesus Christ and said, Lord Jesus, I receive you as my Savior. Come and forgive my sin. Be my Lord. Get my name in your book. Save me from my sin. everybody's head bowed across the room right now please everybody's head just pray with me please is there anybody here this morning that you just say that's it I've waited too long I'm not I don't I, either I've waited a long time or I'm not sure right now but I don't want to leave this room today without being sure that my name is in that book can I pray for you this morning if you say hey dad pray for me today today Jesus said that you confess you confess him before men and he confesses you before his father and the angels in heaven is there anybody here today that you haven't made that decision, but today 
Today you want to be sure. Today you want to confess Christ as the Lord. Today you want to surrender to Jesus Christ. Would you lift up a hand and say, hey, that's me. Dab, today I want to make sure that today's my day. I've got to make sure that today I receive Jesus Christ. Come on, lift up your hand right now where you are. Make a decision today. If you have not made that choice, he loves you. He's called you. Only you can respond. You can't earn a place in the book. His grace has paved the way. He's called you. He's called your name. Will you respond? If you haven't, today's your day. The other thing to consider is this, friends. You've got to take this seriously. You've got to take this seriously. What will you do today and the rest of your life to make sure that there are more names in that book? What does it matter? What are you willing to do? How uncomfortable are you willing to get? Are you willing to risk a little bit of discomfort and possible rejection to try to make sure that there's one more name in that book? You might think, golly, Dav, you're kind of laying on a little thick. I didn't do it. The Bible did. I would be, I don't want to, I'm, the Bible says that those who teach will be judged more harshly, and I'm going to be held accountable for how I present this. And if I soft pedal this or water it down, I don't want to get accountable. I don't want to answer to Jesus for that. So here's the truth. All we know is what the book says. That if your name, if everybody whose name is in the book is spared, is saved, saved, saved. But everybody whose name is not is thrown into the lake of fire. You and I, we have work to do. We have opportunity in front of us. How many this morning, the best you can to stand, I'm going to ask you to stand in just a minute. How many this morning will stand with me and say, I'll do what I can with God's help, I will do what I can with God's help to make sure there's more names in that book. Will you stand with me if you believe that?